Thank you. It's a delight to be with you, and we have been making our way through the, uh, the, the Passion Week of Jesus. We are, uh, uh, we are, uh, listen, I teach at a seminary in North Carolina. I've confused everybody. We do, in fact, live in North Carolina, Cary, North Carolina. It's not very important, but several have asked, and I know I got you confused. We, uh, we were in California for a lot of years when I taught at Master's, Semin uh, Master's College. Uh, now Master's University, but uh, now I teach at a seminary, and uh, I am sporting the colors today here, Shepherd Seminary, and I even brought along some literature if anybody's interested, and I'd love to talk to you about it, but let's not take any time on that. We are talking about the Passion Week of Jesus. You have a set of notes, and uh, actually we have come to uh, uh, Monday and Tuesday. Let me, let me take you back. Uh, as a matter of fact, this is the outline that I use for the, uh, the Passion Week, and it just helps me, uh, and I'll highlight this as we go along. But Sunday is very much a day of messianic presentation. And what I mean by that is that on that day, Jesus deliberately, formally, having orchestrated the day, having laid the groundwork so that the city would in fact receive him, and uh, in specific fulfillment of at least three lines of Old Testament prophecy that I give you on your sheet, I'm not going to go through it, Jesus rides into the city of Jerusalem and presents himself as Messiah. Now, I left you with this question last night, given Sunday, why Friday? That outline is, is throughout your notes. As a matter of fact, in your notes, you have a blue sheet. And uh, if you find that blue sheet kind of stands out, and look on kind of the back of it, I'll give you that same outline and, and the basic uh, uh, events of each of the, uh, the successive days. So at any rate, uh, Sunday is a day of Messianic presentation. I ask the question because, folks, on Sunday, the entire city rose up in wild, excited welcome of Jesus. That's what the Bible says, and as I said to you last night, there's no other way to explain how it is that Jesus got away with it other than that he excited the city so that the whole city welcomed him and there was nothing that Jesus' enemies could do about it, though you can bet it made them so mad it's beyond what we can imagine. Th think about this. The Pharisees ran the city of Jerusalem for all practical purposes. Not, not officially, but as far as Jerusalem was almost entirely Jewish uh, and and and. And, and the Pharisees were the grandest heroes of the common man. And so the Pharisees could, uh, uh, again, they, 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 they pretty much ran the city. And they had put out a bulletin not too many weeks ago, John 11, verse 57, that this Nazarene was to be arrested. And not only does he, 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 he doesn't sneak into town, he rides into town on a donkey, and the whole city welcomes him as king. Now, can you imagine the anger of the Pharisees. But I asked the question, given Sunday, why Friday? And uh, I believe the answer is Monday and Tuesday. Because as I say here, Monday and Tuesday are days of messianic proclamation. Now, I'm going to go through these two days, and they, they deserve so much more attention than I'm going to give them. But we've got limited time. And uh, so I, uh, you've got extensive, uh, more extensive notes in your note packet. 
But I'm going to fly through these two days. Let me just say they are two of the most exciting days in all of Jesus' life. I've often thought if you came to me with one free ride on your newly invented time machine, I think I'd dial up Monday and Tuesday. Oh, what it would have been to witness these two days. But again, the question kind of before the house for the next few minutes is, given Sunday, why Friday? Given the fact that on Sunday the city welcomed him, why on Friday are they demanding his crucifixion? And I will argue that the answer is Monday and Tuesday. Now, to make, that, to make sense of that, let me take you to, uh, I already said that, to the events of, you know what, I'm going to do this. I'm going to take, oh, I've got to do something else. Forgive me. I want to go back very quickly to Sunday, the day of messianic preparation. Uh, presentation, presentation. This is in your notes. I'm in your notes here. Page... Uh, Nine, because there are two events which happen on Saturday evening. I'm confusing you here. Let's go back. On Friday, John 12, verse 1, six days before the Passover. Remember the journey that we talked about yesterday? Up through Samaria, falls in with the, Gal with the Galilean uh, uh, pilgrims, makes his way down the Jordan Rift, up into Jerusalem, but on Friday, he stops and sends the, the crowds into the city. The city is abuzz with the question, John 11, 55 and 56, is Jesus coming to the Passover? These hundreds of excited people who have been traveling with Jesus for several days are all, they, 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 they got the answer. He is coming, but he stopped in Bethany, so he'll be there, he'll be here on Sunday morning. And thus it is, as Jesus rides into the city on su su Sunday morning, that the city explodes in welcome. But couple of things happen, or something happens on Saturday night. I'm going to tell you about a very, it's, it's, it's familiar, and I've mentioned it to you, but it really is important to what's going to unfold in the rest of the week. On Saturday night, the little village of Bethany throws Jesus a feast. Now you can imagine, and this fits so well with everything we know about Jewish culture and habits. You see, the Passover is a quiet day. You just, you don't travel much, you stay close, you spend it with family. But you can imagine that all during that Saturday, the word spread throughout the village of Bethany, the Nazarene is here. This one who came to town, and as we were all out there at the tomb, and Lazarus came walking out, he's come back. That is, Jesus is back in town. We need to throw him a feast. So that night, there is a feast. Do you recall at whose house the feast was held. You remember? This was not, this was not uh, Lazarus's house. It was held at the home of a man named Simon the what? Remember? Yeah, the leper. If you got an invitation to a feast at the house of Simon the leper, it'd be finger food, you know. But the point is that uh, clearly Simon was over his leprosy. Now, the Bible doesn't say this, but I just wonder if he too didn't have good reason to really cherish this Nazarene. So he evidently, his leprosy had been so severe that he became known as Simon the leper, but now he's living back in town, he's having people to his house. But lay that aside, the fact is that at that feast on Saturday night, all right, now listen, there's a question and answer period later. You may have, if you're, if you're uh, 
you know, a fairly solid, uh, you, you pay close attention to the Gospels, you know that there's some issue here, but I, I can talk about it later. Let me just say, there's some issue as to when this feast happened. But it happened clearly on Saturday night. John puts it there, and Matthew and Mark tell it in the midst of their Tuesday night narrative, but they tell it as a flashback. I'll show you that. But the point is, there is a feast. And at that feast, Mary, the sister of Lazarus, anoints Jesus with hideously expensive. You know, there were two elements of life which we take very granted, which were very, very much for granted, which were very expensive and rare in this culture. They are color and scent. Color was very expensive. Bright colors such as you see just by looking around the, the room today, uh, that was very expensive. And scent really fine perfume and so on. It had to be shipped in from Saudi Arabia and all these different... So the point is, she had this, and clearly Lazarus was a wealthy man, and she had this flask of ointment, and I'll tell you something. Here you have, just imagine. Here, all these people have gathered in happy celebration of uh, the Nazarene who's come back to town. It's Saturday evening, Sabbath has gone out, and after the Sabbath, oftentimes they would gather in, in this sort of gathering. So... Everybody's excited, and, and it's probably mostly in the courtyard. Most homes were, you did most of your living outdoors, but there were uh, rooms, of, and so people are gathered hither and yon and so on. And Mary comes, and, and she, she has this flask of oil, and it's tightly uh, a sealed, of course, and she carefully breaks the seal and, and, and pops the stopper, whatever it is. At that moment, everybody around, everybody within a few feet, I think, would have stopped everything they were doing. Wow, what is that? And if she had just taken just a little dab of it and, and, and anointed Jesus' head with it, it would have been such an act of love and, and, and kindness. And she takes and begins to slosh it on him. And that smell would have erupted, and wherever you were in the house, you'd have stopped every... What in the... Wow, what is that? And you'd have come to see and to smell, to see what was going on. And uh, it was... And, and of course... If you'd have been there that day, I didn't mean to get this far into that, but if you'd have been there that day, you would have said what all of the apostles said. They all said, Mary, what are you thinking about? Now, it was Judas who kept the bag and would have liked to have skimmed a little bit off, but he's the one who said, according to John, oh, Mary, you should sell that and give it to the poor. And you remember, it's interesting that Jesus rebuked all of them. The rebuke was not just to Judas. Now, that's what John highlights, but the fact is, the Gospels, the synoptics, that he said to all of them, leave her alone. She has done this against the day of my burial. And Mary was the one person who recognized, who was willing to bow the knee to what Jesus had said. And, and uh, so at any rate, now, here's the point. Uh, when... Jesus administered that rebuke. And you have to understand that, that he, he didn't speak it only to Judas. But it was only Judas who took offense at it. He was stung. You know, I'll tell you something. Here is a spiritual reality. You see it all throughout the scriptures. Learn it. Learn it. Sin makes you stupid. Honest to goodness, it just makes you stupid in every way. And the way you react, the way you, 
Now, everybody else in the place, uh, they say, well, yeah, you're right. You know. But Judas, it so stung him that according to Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it festered in his soul spirit for, two, for three days. This was on Saturday. And on Tuesday, Judas finally had the opportunity, and he stole away to the house of Caiaphas and bargained to help them betray Jesus. And the synoptics relate that quite clearly to the curse, not the curse, the, 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 the uh, uh, rebuke administered by Jesus. Does that make sense to you? So it was on Saturday night that it occurred. Now I'll just say very quickly, both Matthew and Mark tell the story of the feast in the middle of their Tuesday narrative because it's their, they're telling you what it was that so angered. You know, Paul says in Ephesians, let not the, sin, the sun go down on your wrath, neither give place to the devil. I think he may very possibly have, be remembering this incident because it festered for, for in, in, in Judas' soul spirit. I'm making sense to you, it festered in his soul spirit for about three days and where Matthew and Mark both tell the story of, his, of, the, of the feast and the rebuke, Luke simply says, Satan entered into Judas. And, and in point of fact, Judas's wicked heart, look, don't psychoanalyze Judas, all right? Don't try and find some mysterious motive. The Bible could not be explicit, more explicit. He was a thief. And he loved his sin more than he loved what he knew to be the truth. And let me tell you something. Now we're wandering into theology. Hell will be full of no other kind of person. The only people who get into hell, and you've got to work at it, because God is throwing everything across your path, are people who love their sin more than they love what they know very well. Is there any man in history who knew the truth better than Judas? But he loved his sin, and he clung to his sin, and it corrupted and distorted and perverted his soul spirit, and, and, and for that reason, he goes down, that, that is... This whole well, at any rate, so it was on Friday night, Saturday night, that the feast was held, and it was on Tuesday night that Judas went and actually did the deed. All right, so let's go ahead. Let's go back to Monday, and I'm going to go very quickly now. What happens is, and I already talked about this cleansing of the temple. I got into that uh, inadvertently yesterday, so I'm just going to say very quickly uh, on Tuesday, on Monday morning. Jesus, by the way, by the way, Jesus was wise as a serpent, folks factor this in. He is a fugitive there, and, 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 and his enemies, especially Jewish, but ultimately Roman, are desperate to put a stop to what's going on. But, uh, so, and so Jesus stays in Bethany, because Bethany is just outside the city of Jerusalem. It's on a major, uh, it's just off a major highway. There's constantly going to be, and what is it? How does Jesus protect himself? What does he use? It's the, it's the fascination of the crowds. And, and I'll come back to that. But the point is that uh, every night Jesus goes out to Bethany. You know, <laughs> time out, I keep... There is a protocol of Eastern culture generally, but it shows up so dramatically in the Bible again and again, that if I take you into my home, I am absolutely duty-bound to protect you at any cost, including my wealth and my family. Now this shows up a couple of times in the Bible when Lot is going to give over his daughters and when the 
Gibeonites or the Gibeites there when uh, you remember they and uh, I, I used to travel with a uh, he's a good friend he's a bus driver in Israel and uh, he was a Bedouin and he you know very much a part of this culture and I'd ask him just to explain the culture and he'd always stop on us he'd say if I accept you into my house I would die to protect you I would give the life of my children to protect you and so on well that that's just built this matter of fact this is what's behind the verse in the psalm that says uh, thou preparest a table before me in the presence of my enemies. If you've accepted me into your house, I can be absolutely comfortable because no matter what the enemy is, you're going to protect me. Well, the point is, when Jesus goes back every, every night to Bethany, those people would die rather than anybody lay a hand up. See the point? It's so careful the way Jesus has, has, has orchestrated this whole scene. But at any rate, Monday morning, Jesus comes back into town, into Jerusalem, and for a second time in his ministry, and disabuse your mind of the notion that it's some momentary anger or peak, uh, P-I-Q-U-E, some momentary peak. He's, he's, this is very much, I, I think, planned. And he comes back, and uh, now listen. All right, number one, who ran the temple? We talked about this yesterday. The Sadducees. Uh, the Pharisees had been enraged with Jesus for months. We watched it happen in the pages of the Gospels. The Sadducees have been kind of holding back. They weren't too interested. But, on, you know, I always say, if, if, what would it be like if, if, if the, the federal government, for reasons like it needs reasons, uh, of its own decided to, uh, on a decree, that uh, all retail business had to shut down the day after Thanksgiving and couldn't reopen until January 1st, you know? How would that be? That's what's going on him here. For him to walk into the temple at this time when the Sadducees fill their coffers for the whole year with all these people and put a stop to it for two days. Now, Jesus not only cleansed the temple, drove them out, but in this case, which he did in John 2, but he goes further here, and for two days he totally possesses the temple. That is, he just takes control. I don't even know for sure what it looks like. Let me just take you. This is uh, just a, a, a drawing, Lane Rittmeyer. Uh, drawing of the temple, but you have this huge outer court, which is 35 acres. You can get a quarter million people up in that, in that uh, installation. That is Herod's temple. That is the Herod's remodeling of the second temple. Love to talk to you about it, but the point is that, as I said to you last night, the, or yesterday, the, the, the Sadducees, the priests, had realized that uh, the Worshippers had to bring the, the lambs to them in order for it to be accepted, and so they just set up this kickback operation where it's got to be a shepherd that is paying us a piece of the action or we won't accept the lamb. And uh, to police it, they had moved it inside the court of the Gentiles, and then they were charging those usurious rates for the temple tax and so on. The people despised it, and Jesus once again took a cord, drove the money changers and the animals off and so on, threw over the tables. And then the Bible says in Mark that he would not so much as let a man carry a vessel of water across the temple. Somehow he took control of that vast area. Now, folks, two points there. Number one, can you imagine the anger of the Sadducees now? The Pharisees have been mad at him for a long time because he's been on their territory in the synagogues. But now he takes control of the temple. The Sadducees are angry beyond words. And remember, the Sadducees and the Pharisees together make up the Sanhedrin, and because Jesus is so popular with the people, the officials have to get the Romans involved in his death, 
And in order to do that, the Sanhedrin has to move. Well, now they are united, and they're going to be done with Jesus. But a second point to be made here real quickly. Malachi says specifically, Malachi 3 and verse 1, that the messenger of the covenant, the one who will in fact bring this blessed new covenant that the prophets who have, who have looked forward to, this new covenant, uh, the blessings of which we enjoy, the messenger of the covenant will come suddenly to his temple. Everybody understood that Messiah would rule for the temple, from the temple. For two days, Jesus rules in the temple. Jesus never behaves more messianically than on these two days when he takes control of the temple. Now, of course, throughout the time he's teaching his enemies, and I love this, but I'm just going to be very quick with it, his, his enemies, or represent, they send representatives to try and catch Jesus in his words. Let me tell you something. If you want to prove in our culture that you are a man among men, what do you got to do? I, I don't know, maybe beat everybody in the room in arm wrestling or whatever in the world. You want to prove you're a man among men in a Jewish culture, you put your opponent to silence in open debate. This is really heavyweight stuff. And here Jesus, he's taking control of the temple, and, and, and everybody is hanging on every word, and so his enemies come on Tuesday morning. First, the Sadducees. Oh, I love this. i got to tell you this. The Sadducees come and they say, all right, got to back up just quick. You see, now watch this. There's a lot going on here. In order to be rid of Jesus, the Sanhedrinists were going to have to get the, Ro the Romans to do it for him. Got that? How are they going to do that? They're going to try to persuade the Roman official, Pilate, that Jesus is a seditionist, that he's a threat to Rome, that he is a pretender king. Well, on the face of it, it seems that wouldn't be too difficult to do because he's going up and down the countryside claiming to be the Messiah. And Messiah means a lot of things, but above all other things to a Jewish mind, it means king. Now, I say that he had gone up and down the countryside making that claim, and he had, but he had been so clever in it. You check the record in the Gospels, Jesus never takes the word Messiah to himself. And the reason is because he knew it would, just, it, it would just enable his enemies. That makes sense to you. They could make the case. So he takes to himself dozens and scores of Old Testament passages and pictures. Again, what's his favorite name for himself 81 times? Where does Son of Man come from? Daniel 7. The Ancient of Days convenes the heavenly courtroom, and, and one like unto a Son of Man appears and is dispatched to establish a fifth world kingdom. No Jewish listener in the world would miss the fact that he's claiming to be a Messiah. In another place, he reads Isaiah 61 and simply says, This day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears, Luke 4. So he takes all of these Old Testament pictures and titles and, and passages and so on to himself, which every Jewish hearer here is going to understand he's claiming to be a Messiah. But are his Jewish enemies going to go off to Pilate and say, you better arrest this man. He claims to be the son of man. <laughs> Pilate's going to say, well, me too. You know? <laughs> so, honest to goodness, that's a, that's a very Jewish guy. So, so, so he was so careful. Well, you see it here. Because now, 
his enemies. He's, 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 on, he's taking control of the Temple Mount. He is teaching the Sadducees who control the Temple Mount because they bribed so heavily the Roman authorities. They come and they say, by what authority, authority do you do these things? Now let me tell you something. They wanted to hear him say, I am your Messiah and I have a right to this temple. And that's exactly what they wanted to hear him say because they're going to go straight to Pilate and they're going to say, we just heard him. He said he was Messiah. He claimed to be a king. You've got to do something about it. Jesus knows this. Oh, I love the way Jesus was so clever. So Jesus says to them, all right, I'll ask you a question. By rabbinical protocols, this is exactly the way it's done. All right, I'll ask you a question. The baptism of John, was it of heaven or was it of men? That almost seems like a non sequitur. Where that? No, no. The Sadducees step back and they put their heads together and they say, wait a minute. If we say that the baptism of John was of heaven, then we've got our answer because John announced him as Messiah, and if he's Messiah, he's got every right to the temple. So we can't say that. But if we say the baptism of John was of men, these people will stone us. They love John the Baptist. So now they come back and they say, Master, we have no answer. The place would have erupted. There would have been huzzas and cheers. Hey, it was, that was a one-punch knockout in a heavyweight fight. Honest to goodness, you've got to understand how dramatic this is. Now come the, Sag the Pharisees, and is it right to pay tri tribute to Caesar? Take out that coin. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar. Render to God. And, and they respond by saying, Master, you've, you've answered well. And then the Sadducees come again, suckers for punishment. You've know, got the woman with the, with the seven husbands, you know, and, and uh, you know that story. The woman had seven husbands, and each of them died. I always think she was poisoned in the soup, but that's another question. But it's just a story. It's just a story. But... But uh, in the resurrection, whose, whose wife shall she be? I think this was probably something they'd used on their, on their Pharisaic brothers all the time. They, they didn't have any answer. And you know what? The, the Sadducees gave lip service. The Sadducees didn't believe anything. You know, that they were totally Hellenized. But they Grecianized. But uh, Platonized. They were pl Platonic to the core. But the point is that they, they gave lip service to the uh, Pentateuch to the five books of Moses. They rejected the rest of the Bible, but they gave lip service. Now, I say gave lip service. They said they believed it, but they didn't believe it. They didn't practice it. They didn't study it. But one of the books in the Torah is Leviticus, and it tells you to go to the temple and pay your tithes, and these people run the temple, and so they know where their bread's buttered. So they, they, they give lip service to, to, the, uh, to the Torah. Well, it's interesting to me that when the question before the house is the reality of the resurrection, Jesus goes to the Pentateuch. I don't know, but it seems to me, if I were to say to you, any one of you uh, who's schooled at all in the Old Testament, if you're not, shame on you, get that way, but uh, if I were to say, prove to me the resurrection of the Old Testament, it's not difficult at all. You go to Job, you go to Daniel, you go to the Psalms, and so on. If I were to say, prove to me the resurrection from the Pentateuch, take a minute and think about that. That'd be a tougher assignment. But that's where Jesus goes. And he takes us to the burning bush. And at the burning bush, God said to Moses, Not I was, but I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who had been dead for four to six hundred years. And you remember then Jesus simply said, God's not a God of the dead. He's a God of the living. And you know what? Luke 20, verse 40, after that, the Sadducees turned to him. No, this is what, what Luke says. After that, no man dared ask him any question at all. They'd had enough of this sport. 
And uh, again, I mean, the, Jesus is demonstrating his, his grasp of the Old Testament and the truth of his claims and so on. There are parables and so on, but what I want to take you to, and folks, I'm going to have to take a minute at this, but late on Tuesday afternoon, after all the excitement of the day and so on, Jesus pronounced a series of woes upon the scribes and Pharisees. Now, if you, I'm not going to take the time, but if you were to go to the, uh, uh, those ten important insights that I gave you early on, one of them, I say this, and folks, hear me on this. This is so big. If you're going to understand Jesus' ministry, Jesus, you know, I read a book not too long. It was a perfectly hideous book. Uh, and it was written by a man who had a huge church. Was a, he admitted that most of the people were lost, that they came just to, you know, as a weekly exercise and so on. But he was defending that. And one of the chapters was titled, Jesus Never Thinned the Crowds. And I thought, you never read the Gospels. Because Jesus was a master at putting his finger on the most sensitive spiritual nerve in your psyche and saying, that's where I'm going to test you. A rich man, a rich young ruler comes, look, you don't get to heaven by selling everything you have. But understand this, that that, back up one step, in the Bible, I am convinced, and you take this under advisement, okay, I'm convinced that the best, uh, Analog or, or, or synonym for, for what the Bible means when it talks about faith, about saving, believing, is allegiance. That's exactly what the Bible means when it talks about faith. It means you swear allegiance. If you swear allegiance to a king, number one, you're going to obey him, right? And number two, you're gonna, he's entirely responsible for your security. You're going to trust him. And that's the Old Testament concept. You gave somebody... Just wrote a book, and I haven't read it. I just saw a blurb for it the other day, uh, uh, Saved by Allegiance Alone. And I, I, I like that, because it's really what's at stake. Well, my, here, come, here comes this rich young ruler. He says, I want to follow you. I want to swear my allegiance to you. That means I'm going to obey anything. So he says, all right, let me, do, let me ask you this. Sell everything you've got and give it to the poor. Now, he's not saying that's how you get to heaven, for heaven's sakes. He's saying the way you get to heaven is by giving such total allegiance to King Jesus that you'll do whatever he demands of you. Does that make sense to you? Now, my point is that Jesus puts his finger, he goes to, to, to Nazareth. Oh, I've got to give you some background here, but he was raised in Nazareth. And just outside of Nazareth was a Roman outpost because it sits on such a strategic ridge. And those Roman soldiers were just the bane of the Nazarenes' existence, their lives. They were so troublesome and so dangerous and so on. And so the Nazarene, the people of the village of Nazareth, despised Gentiles. Really wickedly so. Now Jesus comes back, reads, remember Luke chapter 4, is invited to read in the synagogue, and reads that Isaiah 61 passage, and everybody says, oh, everybody's so amazed, and they're looking upon him. And then what does Jesus say? You know, there were a lot of, lep there were a lot of widows in Israel in the Old Testament, but God sent Elijah to a Syrophoenician widow. And there were a lot of lepers, but God healed a Syrian leper. What next? What do the Nazarenes do next? They want to throw them off a cliff. The, two minutes ago, they were, they, were, they were excited to hear what he had to say. Now they want to throw them off a cliff. He knew exactly where their spiritual sauce was. Does that make sense to you? Now listen. 
the Pharisees were universally revered by the common man. You see, the, the Pharisees were professional law keepers. That was not an aspect of their lives. It was the sum total of their lives. They lived to keep the law because they knew, they, 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 they spoke much of the grace of God, but what they meant by the grace of God was God was so gracious he gave us the law. And all we have to do is keep the law. And the more punctilious we are, the more certain we are to be part of the kingdom. And so their whole day, and, and, and the common man had to go to work, had to plow the fields and so on. He couldn't do all that. So he really, and, and there was the sense that those Pharisees were kind of doing it on behalf of the people around whom they lived. And so they just revered. But, but, the Pharisees were the, the arbiters or the proclaimers of this hideously wicked uh, false gospel that the way to please God is to keep the law, that the law is a means of shinning, you know, hand over handing your way up into heaven and or into the kingdom, I should say, in their mind. But the point is that for that reason, the Pharisees, oh, I've got to tell you one other thing. The Pharisees were universally revered and they were universally feared because they controlled the synagogue. And if you made them angry, for instance, the man born blind in John chapter 9, remember they tossed him out of the synagogue. You don't want to get tossed out of Living Hope Bible Church, shame on you. But I'm telling you, getting tossed out of the synagogue is on a different order. Uh, your whole life was about the synagogue. It wasn't primarily a religious gathering place. It was just where your whole life was centered. And if you got tossed out of the synagogue, you very possibly are going to have to be to go off to some other uh, to some other village to live and so on. So I can't tell you how how central it was. How, uh, that is how. Uh, so the the Pharisees had the capacity to toss you out of the synagogue. So now put it all together. Am I making sense to you? Here is Jesus has the perfect foil, and again and again. All right, I got to tell you. This is the Sermon on the Mount. My point is, when Jesus is followed by masses who seem to be willing to swear allegiance to him, but he knows how shallow that is, he has a means of thinning the crowds. And he does it again and again by simply saying, it's me or the Pharisees. And the reason that's so effective is because to reject the Pharisees, is to, very possibly, you're going to pay a price. Does that make sense to you? So I go way back to it. Well, first of all, Sermon on the Mount. The key verse of the Sermon on the Mount is, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, think about the Sermon on the Mount. Here we are in Galilee. Jesus is on the side of a hill. I can take you to that hill. Thousands of people gathered out here. It's a, it's a hill that has natural acoustic capacity so you can be heard by thousands and uh and and all these people and many of the people there were people in that in that crowd that morning here i am in the sermon on the mount way back but there were people at that crowd that morning who had just broken a crutch over their knee you know what i'm saying and tossed it there were people who were looking upon their loved ones for the first time because jesus had just healed their blindness dozens and scores of people undoubtedly there was a whole season of healing now he goes up on the hillside, but over here in the corner is a little gaggle of Pharisees. And like I say, you can see them a mile off. And, and I always say, in order to understand either Matthew 5 or Matthew 23, you've got to, to picture Jesus pointing. Because there in Matthew 5 in the Sermon on the Mount, I think he pointed at the Pharisees and says, unless your righteousness exceed that of the Pharisees, uh, scribes and Pharisees, you'll never glimpse the kingdom of God. Folks, a gasp 
would have gone up. They were one of the favorite, Edertime says that one of the favorite uh, nicknames, sobriquets that they had for themselves was gatekeeper. They'd, they'd, they'd greet one another, good morning fellow gatekeeper, the Pharisees would, because they knew the law so well that not only were they certain to get into the kingdom, but God was going to use them to decide who else would get in the kingdom. And for Jesus to stand there and say, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you'll never glimpse the kingdom of God. Yeah, that was, those were fighting words. And then the whole sermon, they say unto you, but I say unto you. You've heard it said by them, but I say unto you. And at the end of the sermon, I think, and again, picture him pointing. There's a broad way, help yourself, straight to destruction, but there's a narrow way. You can build your house on the, on the sand, help yourself, it's going to be de- destroyed. Or you can build your, does that make sense to you? Jesus was a master at using the Pharisees as the foil against which he would, he would present himself. And he'd say, look, you're going to either reject, you're going to turn from idols to turn to the living God. You're either going to reject that, well, tie it all together. Matthew, I'm sorry, the triumphal entry. The whole city welcomes him. I'm asking given Sunday, why Friday? On Monday morning, Jesus, this is what I mean by days of proclamation, Jesus goes, cleanses the temple, takes possession, takes on all comers, speaks parables, appeals to Psalm 110 in defense of his own messiahship and deity and so on. But at the end of the day, and this is the last public discourse of Jesus, as he leaves the temple mount, he says to the people, and again, you can bet the Pharisees are gathered. Picture him pointing. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees. In this entire tirade, if you don't mind, he never mentions the Sadducees. Is that because the Sadducees aren't crooks? They don't have a, No. Nobody wants to be like the Sadducees. Everybody is clinging to the Pharisees. And Jesus is saying, you choose. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You compass land and sea to make one proselyte, and when you've got him, he's twofold more of the child of hell than he was in the first place. Woe unto you, scribes. At one point he says, you swallow a camel. You strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. Folks, that's hilarious. That word picture, the place would have erupted in laughter because it so perfectly describes these Pharisees that were so punctilious. They would, they would examine every piece of, they, they, they had decided that bugs were unclean. That's what the Bible says. But if it was microscopic, it was okay. But if it was, it was visible to the naked eye, you had to, and before they would eat a bit of lettuce, they would take it and turn it over and you know, set it aside and so on. Uh, they were straining out an ab, but they would swallow a camel. And, but at any rate, the point is this, this, woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, you're like so many whited sepulchers. At Passover, you see, people didn't bury in cemeteries, and there would just be a cave somewhere on your property, and it would get overgrown. And so maybe somebody is coming up to Passover, and he just wants to sit in the shade for a while, and he sits up against you, he doesn't know it's a tomb, and you come along and say, hey, now you're in trouble because you're going up to the Passover and you're unclean now. You touch the tomb. So, the, the, so the, 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 the rabbis had decreed that at all feast seasons you had to go out and slap lime on your tombs. You had to just throw white on them so that people would realize it. Well, they looked good, but they were full of dead men's bones, and if you just rubbed up against them, you became a stench in God's nostrils. By the way, that's what impure means. All throughout the Bible, when God talks about something being unclean, it means it stinks. You don't like somebody around you who stinks, and God doesn't either. So you're, you're a stench when, you, when you're impure. And the point is, here, here's Jesus, woe unto you, you're like so many whited sepulchers. 
You look good on the outside, but men just rub up against you to become a stench in God's nostrils. Again and again. And he winds up by saying, you, you, uh, uh, well, at any rate, what's Jesus doing? He's demanding that the people make a decision. So I'm going to go back to it, folks, honestly. The, the question is, given Sunday, why Friday? I would argue the answer is Monday and Tuesday in this sense, that Jesus, as was his habit, and using the same social dynamics that he used again and again, that is the presence and the importance of the Pharisees, at the end of the day, having proven for two days, having behaved more messianically than any other time in his ministry, now as he leaves the city, he says, all right, you make a choice. Woe unto you. You know the word woe is almost always in the Old Testament used for a prophetic curse on a Gentile nation that, re that, that rejects the God of Israel? For him to use those terms, woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. I think the sum, the, the, the purpose of the whole, uh, what, what's going on is Jesus is saying, as he did again and again in his ministry, you make a choice. Now, he's going to go back to Bethany. That night, there is going to be a, that night, the Sanhedrinists, mad beyond words. Both Pharisees, who have been mad at him for a long time, and the Sadducees, who just endured these two days, the Pharisees, who endured, just endured this public scathing, they, they, they're, they're enraged, they're insane with anger, and they gather together, and they determine we need to kill him, but we can't until after the feast because there will be a riot. And at that moment, Judas came and said, no, I can help. That sets us up for the rest of the week. We'll handle it this afternoon. But let me just say this. That, uh, and, and one point to be made here real quickly. There's a lot of confusion as to what Judas was hired to do. This is Luke 22 and verse 6, if you want to look. Luke 22 and verse 6 could not be more explicit. Judas, you have the idea that he was hired to identify Jesus. No, that doesn't work at all. That comes, I mean, like the Pharisees wanted, the Sanhedrin wanted to arrest him, but they couldn't pick him out of a lineup, for heaven's sake. Good heavens, they, the man had just ridden into town on a, you know. The, the, that comes from the kiss. The one whom I kiss will be, but the kiss was for the soldiers, not for the Sanhedrin. And Judas was not, high, the, the, the Roman soldiers who were necessary to the arrest didn't know who Jesus was. But everybody knew who Jesus was. Judas was hired to help the, the Sanhedrinists arrest Jesus in the absence of the multitude. And he knew that the time, next time he'd be in the absence of the multitude was at the Passover feast. So a huge plot is put in place to get Jesus arrested, tried, and on his way to execution while the city sleeps on Passover night. That's what we're going to talk about this afternoon. Well, let me come back to this. I'm a little over time. Let me just say this real quickly. Number one, Sunday is a day of messianic presentation. Folks, what does that mean? Well, I mean, just to us as we sit here this morning, it means simply this, that Jesus offers himself legitimately as the promised Savior of the world. Uh, that's exactly what's going on. On Sunday, as he rides in in fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, that promise which was first made in Genesis 3 in the garden, uh, that, that God would raise up this seed of the woman who would destroy the, 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 the tempter. And uh, uh, in point of fact, that Jesus is offering himself as that deliverer. Amen and amen? All right, what's the point of Monday and Tuesday? I would say... 
point of Monday and Tuesday is, very simply, you don't take Jesus on your terms. You take him on his terms. Why was the city welcoming him on Sunday? Because they wanted deliverance from Rome. But if the question was, do you need deliverance from sin, they, they had that taken care of. And every generation, every individual perhaps, would like to craft a Jesus of his own making. You don't take Jesus on your terms. You take him on his terms. And his terms include the reality that he is the only hope of deliverance from sin. Amen and amen. So Sunday, a day of messianic presentation. Monday and Tuesday, proclamation. He makes clear the truth concerning himself, walks away, goes back to Bethany, leaves the city with a decision. They're going to announce their verdict. Logo A. No. They're going to announce their verdict. <laughs> That'd be something else. They're going to announce... I, I, forgive me there. I'm being silly, but... They're going to announce their verdict on Friday morning when a stunned pilot says, who would you have me give you? And they say, give us Barabbas. Remember that? That's when the city announces its verdict. We'll talk about that. All right, well, let's have a word of prayer quickly. Thank you, Father, for this marvelous account, this marvelous drama, and uh, it deserves a much better telling, but it is a story that uh, on its own merit is so, so very worth our careful attention. So help us to understand it aright, and uh, Father, we, we want to deliberately bow the knee to this one who presented himself as the long-awaited Messiah Savior. We welcome him into our hearts, and we are anxious to serve him. Might that be evermore our attitude, and we'll thank you in his name. Amen.